88K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Steve Dunthorne. Tonight's headlines. Authorities confirm four more coronavirus deaths as they probe outbreaks at two wet markets. The government said to be close to offering COVID tests for anybody who wants one. And the High Court has to deal with the first case brought under the new national security law tomorrow. Hong Kong's COVID death toll continues to mount, with four additional fatalities yesterday, bringing the total to 42. This comes as authorities decided to close two wet markets in Kowloon for at least two days, following a flurry of cases. Ten workers at Hong Kong Market and two from Tokwa Wan are now known to have been infected. Altis Wong reports. The two wet markets were shut early at 5pm for leading microbiologist Yun Kwok Yong and his team to collect samples and for disinfection. Among the 10 cases at the Hong Ham market, half are seafood vendors, and both cases linked to the Tokwa Wan market also work at fish stores. With some major outbreaks on the mainland also linked to fish markets, Dr Chuang Shu Kwan from the Centre for Health Protection said they didn't want to take any chances. We are very whether um, the environment may facilitate the transmission of the disease because we also remember that uh, in the Wuhan, the wet market, and also in the Beijing wet market, they have similar findings in the seafood market. Professor Yun says it's possible that someone with COVID-19 may have sneezed or spat inside the market or the vendors could have infected each other while they had their masks off to eat together. The wet and cold environment at fish stores could also help the virus survive longer, he added. But the expert says people don't need to worry that they could get infected just by eating seafood, saying the chance of this is very low. Officials are also looking into how an 81-year-old patient at Kwangwa Hospital could have been infected after he tested preliminary positive for the virus. For one day last month, he had been in his valence ward in close proximity to a 69-year-old man who was subsequently found to be infected. A chief manager with the hospital authority, Dr Lau Kahin, says some nurses recall seeing the younger patient not wearing his mask properly. He always put down the mask when he was in the ward. At the same time, he walked around in the, in the bed. Such behaviour may contaminate the environment. Authorities have confirmed 18 new COVID-19 cases, mostly local infections, and an additional 50 people tested positive in preliminary tests. But while case numbers are slightly down from the peak last week, the number of deaths continue to mount. Authorities confirmed four more fatalities yesterday, all of elderly people in hospital. This means the death toll has doubled in just over a week to 42, and 15 people have died in the first four days of August alone as the fatality ratio continues to climb. The DAB lawmaker Horace Jung says that the government will expand COVID-19 testing soon. Speaking after meeting the Home Affairs Secretary, Kasper Choi, he said tests would be offered to everyone. We understand that the government is now doing the details and the government will announce the project within the next couple of weeks. And certainly we hope that this project can be implemented, carried out as soon as possible. And we urge the government to expand the scope of the service to not only the residents, but also, for example, the foreign domestic helpers in Hong Kong. Otherwise, it will be a loophole to uh, measures against the COVID-19. The High Court is to consider tomorrow whether the first person charged under the national security law is being lawfully detained. Damon Pang reports. Tong Yin Kit was arrested on July the 1st, hours after the new law came into effect. 
He is accused of inciting secession and engaging in terrorist activities. The 23-year-old is alleged to have crashed a motorcycle bearing a flag saying liberate Hong Kong into a group of police officers. A source told RTHK that the defendant's lawyers will file a habeas corpus application before Judge Anderson Chow, asking him to release their client unless the authorities can put forward legal grounds for his continued detention. The source says this unusual move is being taken because of stringent bail requirements set out in the national security law that places the burden on the suspect to prove that they wouldn't continue to commit acts endangering national security. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past 11. Zhang Xiaoming, a deputy director of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, continued meeting pro-establishment heavyweights today to canvas their views on how to deal with LegCo now that the election has been delayed by a year. He's also believed to be discussing whether four pandemocrats who've been banned from running in the LegCo election should be allowed to stay on for the next year. Speaking on RTHK, Hong Kong's sole delegate to the National People's Congress Standing Committee, Tam Yu Chung, said it would be problematic to allow the four lawmakers to stay on. However, NPC delegate, legislator Michael Tien, says they should be allowed to remain. In the last couple of months, it's unprecedented. From the National Security Bill enacted in Beijing to the postponement of the electoral election, to one year later, a lot of people find things happening too fast and too out of expectation. And I think uh, for four extra seats in the coming year, it's probably best from the standpoint of overall different stakeholders' perception to just uh, let it be. Beijing is warning that it will retaliate if Washington continues what it describes as hostile actions against Chinese journalists based in the United States. Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin said the ministry understands that no Chinese journalist in the United States has had their application for a visa renewal approved since Washington in May moved to limit their visas to 90 days with an option for an extension. Earlier, the editor-in-chief of the mainland tabloid The Global Times warned that American journalists in Hong Kong could be targeted if China is forced to hit back. The two sides have already exchanged tit-for-tat actions involving journalists, with Washington designating multiple Chinese-backed media as foreign embassies, while Beijing expelled US journalists from The New York Times, Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post this year. Turning overseas, tens of millions of people in and around the Philippine capital Manila have been ordered to stay at home after the number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the country doubled to more than 100,000 in less than a month. The BBC's Celia Hatton reports. The new lockdown measures were introduced after medical officials warned the healthcare system was near collapse. For two weeks, most shops will be closed and public transport has been halted. Only one person per household is allowed out to buy essential supplies. The measures will be in place for two weeks, although some top doctors have already said that won't be long enough to bring the virus under control. The Australian state of Victoria has announced harsh new penalties for residents who ignore orders to self-isolate because of the coronavirus. They'll face an on-the-spot fine of around $3,500 if they're caught. The BBC's Phil Mercer reports from Sydney. 
Police in Victoria have said they've been taunted and assaulted by people flouting COVID-19 regulations. The Australian Army has also visited hundreds of residents who've tested positive for the disease, but many weren't in when they should have been in isolation. Victoria's Police Commissioner Shane Patton said small groups had emerged who saw themselves as sovereign citizens who don't think the law applies to them. It does, and heavy fines could now be imposed as millions of Australians prepare for at least six weeks under the nation's toughest lockdown measures. The World Health Organization has warned that the coronavirus is circulating intensely in India. The country now has more than 50,000 confirmed cases every day, and there are fears that it could soon overtake the United States and Brazil as the country with the highest number of infections. As if this wasn't enough to contend with, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Home Minister Amit Shah is in hospital with COVID-19. Details from the BBC's Yogita Limai. He remains in hospital and, uh, you know, is in a stable condition, is what we are told. Uh, you know, of course, lots of actually high-profile politicians have tested positive over the last two, three days. The latest is a prominent opposition leader, K. Siddharamaya, uh, from the southern state of Karnataka. Um, mm. And this really sort of points to, it's an indicator of India's struggle with containing the virus as it's also trying to open up its economy, as, you know, sort of people are attending more meetings, as people are trying to get back to their jobs, uh, you know, but it's happening at the same time as the virus spreading. Um, and that is sort of the real, I think, the real sign, the real indicator of how difficult this battle is for India. Uh, and, you know, just sort of in, in a global ranking, uh, India now has the highest number of new cases and the highest number of new deaths due to coronavirus. The international police body Interpol has warned that cyber criminals are increasingly exploiting the fear and uncertainty of the coronavirus pandemic to target governments, major corporations and critical infrastructure including health services. It says they're targeting security vulnerabilities as organisations try to support employees working from home. Here's the BBC's Danny Eberhardt. Interpol's Secretary-General says cybercriminals are developing their attacks at an alarming pace. It's happening on multiple fronts. These include sending spam emails on COVID-related themes as phishing attacks for sensitive data or to trick people to download malware or ransomware. The criminals also register deliberately misleading web addresses and put fake news online, sometimes embedded with malware. The overall trend looks set to continue. Interpol forecasts a spike in such attacks if and when a coronavirus vaccine becomes available. Reports in the Spanish media suggest the country's former king, Juan Carlos, has travelled to the Dominican Republic after deciding to move out of Spain. Juan Carlos decided to leave after having been implicated in a corruption investigation. The BBC's Nick Beek has the details. The Dominican Republic seems to be a destination that a lot of people within the Spanish media are alighting on without any confirmation. Why is that the case? We know he's been there before. He's got a businessman friend who may be providing hospitality. But if you read other Spanish newspapers, there's a possibility he may have been in Portugal. And is this ultimately the place where he will remain? He's 82 years old. Will he move to another country? Or, or is it you know, not inconceivable that he may come back to Spain at some point? And his lawyers are saying that if there are any further legal proceedings he will be involved in these 
A New York prosecutor has suggested that an investigation into Donald Trump's personal and corporate tax records may be wider in scope than first thought. Court papers show the probe covers possibly extensive and protracted criminal conduct at the Trump organisation, including alleged insurance and bank fraud. The BBC's Peter Bowes reports. President Trump is currently trying to block an attempt by investigators to gain access to eight years of his personal and corporate tax records. In court filings last week, Mr Trump's lawyers argue that a grand jury subpoena for the documents was wildly overbroad for an inquiry largely focused on payments made to women who claimed to have had affairs with Mr Trump before he was elected. In response, the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance, noted that when the subpoena was issued last August, there were public allegations of possible criminal activity at the Trump organisation dating back a decade. Sport now and the first, the football match dubbed the world's richest game takes place overnight. Fulham and Brentford play each other in the playoff final of the English second tier with a promotion to the Premier League worth an estimated 220 million US dollars to the winning club. Here's the Brentford defender, Pontus Janssen. First of all, I think it's going to be a fantastic game, a good football game against two, two good sides. Um... But yeah, like I said to some of the team, players in my team, like I expected this to be the final already be before the Corona break, uh, or when we, when we went, went into the Corona break, I expected yeah, the final would probably be us, and, and then if we can't reach top two, and uh, yeah, now we're there, so <laughs> it's going to be, be nice. In ice hockey, Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins have come to life in the NHL playoffs. Crosby found the back of the net against the Montreal Canadiens in Game 2 of their best-of-five qualifying series. The Penguins went on to win 3-1, tying the series at one game apiece. Elsewhere, the New York Rangers are in a big hole against the Carolina Hurricanes. Andrei Svechnikov scored a hat-trick and a 4-1 win for the Canes and a 2-0 series lead. Two Italian girls whose video of their rooftop tennis match during lockdown has been watched more than 10 million times on social media have received a surprise visit from Roger Federer. The BBC's Olivia Noon reports. When 13-year-old Vittoria Oliveri and 11-year-old Carola Piscina first played their socially distanced tennis match on the rooftops of their neighbouring buildings in northwest Italy, they probably never imagined it would result in a visit from their favourite player, Roger Federer. In a new video shared online, the girls believe they're having yet another media interview when, from behind a curtain, the 20 times Grand Slam champion appears. The pair look equally shocked, with Carola shouting into the street, Grandma, Federer is on our rooftop. The girls were able to show Mr Federer their makeshift court playing a game of rooftop tennis with him. A reminder of our top stories tonight. Authorities confirmed four more coronavirus deaths as they probe outbreaks at two wet markets and the government said to be close to offering Covid tests for anybody who wants one. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 it's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's NewsWrap programme. Another 80 COVID-19 cases were confirmed today, the second day running that the number of new cases dropped below the 100 mark. 
but an infectious disease expert says it's far too early to say Hong Kong is turning the corner. Dr Leung Chi Chu from the Medical Association told Wendy Wong the number of local coronavirus cases remains high, mainly because the government was lagging behind in contact tracing and quarantine work. If we need to cut the transmission link, we need to uh, find the cases and then isolate them immediately and trace all the contacts. And if we can quarantine the contact before they develop disease, we can prevent the transmission into the community. In fact, this delay have caused some further problems. For example, for some of our workers in healthcare institutions and also for uh, some of our healthcare staff working in the hospitals, there are some incidents there. The family members that develop respiratory illnesses, and yeah, because of the delay in the diagnosis, some of them still continue to work in the hospitals and also uh, OH uh, which lead to possible spread in the OH or the hospitals. If we cannot protect the most vulnerable uh, places within our community, we may take much longer time to control the current outbreak. But how can we speed up the works as the government says there's a shortage of manpower as we have so many new cases? First, we need the cooperation of our community, especially the employers and also uh, ordinary citizens, to try to stay at home as much as possible. And if people are moving around constantly, it, won't, it will be an impossible task for a limited number of uh, public health uh, workers to, to trace all of them uh, within a very short time. And the other side, we need to expedite all the testing. And if we can have the test report within one day, it's uh, much more easy for us to ask uh, people to stay home uh, after the, they save the uh, saliva for the testing. And if the test result only return after one week, uh, it will, it's almost impossible task to advise our patient to try to stay home uh, in, in the whole week uh, after they have sent their specimens. But the number of new cases has been dropping, though quite slowly, in the past few days. Is it a good sign? It is a good sign, but the way of fall is not sufficient for us uh, to control the disease uh, within a reasonable time. We need to speed up the whole process so that we have a much faster job in the number of cases that will allow us to contain the current outbreak before there is anti-epidemic fatigue among, I think, the whole population. Miscarriages are often extremely painful and traumatic for couples who want a child, and it is especially so for those who suffer from repeated miscarriages. Now, experts from the Chinese University have come up with a potential solution to this problem. They've developed a new genome sequencing test to identify potential genetic abnormalities in married couples who suffer from recurrent miscarriages. Doctors would then select genetically normal embryos for implantation, substantially reducing the risk of miscarriages. Dr. Jacqueline Chung, Associate Professor from CUHK's Department of Obstetrics and Gynaecology, is a member of the research team. She started off by telling Priscilla Ng about the prevalence and causes of recurrent miscarriages. 
So recurrent miscarriage refers to two or more consecutive miscarriages, and it's quite common. It can affect 1% to 2% of couples worldwide. Um, so in general, up to 50% of the time, it is idiopathic, meaning no cause can be found. But for the other half, it can also be due to um, underlying causes like um, autoimmune conditions, genetic factors, and also anatomical pathologies like uterine anomalies and also some endocrine disorders. The CUHK has developed a new technology called Chromosec, and I assume that's the short form for chromosome sequencing. How does it work and how can it really help to lower the chances of repeated pregnancy losses? So, yes, it refers to um, a comprehensive detection of chromosomal abnormalities with this new genome sequencing technology. So basically, the peripheral blood samples are obtained from each um, partner of the couple, and we will carry out the whole genome sequencing for the DNAs to identify any abnormalities of the chromosome in each of them. Um, once a positive result is reported, then we can benefit from the in vitro fertilization and uh, with subsequent uh, pre-implantation genetic testing. Um, this technique major, uh, mainly helps to select the genetically normal embryos for implantation, and so it can um, reduce the subsequent risk of miscarriage in these couples. Does chromosome come with other benefits? For example, can it lower the chances of genetic diseases for the future baby? Um, yeah, because um, the purpose of this test is to determine whether there are any chromosomal uh, abnormality resulting in severe consequences in their offspring or pregnancy. Um, in conjunction with the IVF and uh, pre-implantation genetic testing, uh, we are able to prevent couples um, from suffering the miscarriage and also having a fetus with a severe genetic defect. So it can really lower ch the chances of genetic disease in a future baby. Well, how much does this uh, new technology cost? Would it be quite affordable for the general public in future? Um, currently, it costs about uh, several thousand uh, Hong Kong dollars for each test, um, but it's cheaper if both partners opt to have the test done together. Uh, most of the cost um, is due to the sequencing, which will be rapidly reduced in the near future um, with further advancement in our uh, technique. Um, therefore, um, I think um, in the near future, it can be an affordable test um, benefiting the um, public health. A curfew has been imposed in Indian-administered Kashmir, a day ahead of the first anniversary of India's controversial decision to strip the region of its special status. Officials say the curfew is meant to prevent violence by groups planning to observe the anniversary as a black day. They said mass gatherings were also not allowed because of COVID-19. The state was split into two federally administered regions last year and its semi-autonomous status was revoked. Anna-Marie Evans asked our Delhi correspondent, Murali Krishnan, what he expects to happen. Well, curfew has been imposed, um, as you rightly pointed out, um, across, the, uh, across the valley, and uh, similarly as what had been imposed last year. But only this time around, we're seeing more boots on the ground. Um, uh, this is also because of the fact that we have a pandemic which is raging not across the country, and Kashmir has also been affected in a big way. So uh, what, what, we, uh, what we're seeing today is mostly people being indoors. Uh, there, there has and only people with, uh, who have have to move out essentially in terms of either going to hospitals or to go to pharmacies and that too with passes are being allowed to venture out of their houses. In fact in many ways it's like a ghost town especially uh, the winter capital Srinagar. Uh, we, uh, 
we also understand that you know uh, there's been a section of the press uh, which has been flown out there uh, a, a, a section of the uh, a, a press which uh, which the government believes will give a, a positive spin on what's happening around in the valley so they have been go they have, they will travel around tomorrow to find out how life is in the valley in the last one year but apart from that uh, there is there, there is there is uh, absolutely life has come to a standstill there is communications in fact the internet especially is still extremely uh, bogged down in terms of no little or no speed right now the uh, people have been clamoring for better speed of 4G internet which has not happened as yet and therefore schools and educational establishments suffer uh, uh, as a result of this uh, all in all it's sort of a situation which we have seen um, uh, pass in the last one year and uh, but i considering the fact that there's teething security in fact bristling security all around i see no no trouble be, uh, coming up breaking out now can you tell me about what occurred a year ago with the, the decision to revoke article 370 what that meant for kashmir well, this has always been as part of the Prime Minister Narendra Modi's agenda, the fact that they thought Article 370 had to be scrapped. They thought uh, special status was, was something which was not required for Kashmir because they believed that the special status had in fact alienated Kashmir from the rest of mainstream India. Uh, it was on, foremost on the agenda to scrap it. Uh, but, this, but then that something which was the state and the people were not taken into confidence while announcing such a momentous move and uh, uh, and, 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 and in many ways, what we're seeing right now in the last one year is uh, uh, administration which is being ruled by the, by, by the, rule, of the rule of the gun. Uh, in fact, uh, there is little or no movement in terms of freedom or, uh, or sort of movement of people within Kashmir. And that, has, that is obviously a, a, a big stumbling block and defeats the very purpose for which Article 370, which gives it special status, more autonomy, uh, except for certain matters like finance and defense, which were supposed to rest with uh, New Delhi. But there has been uh, no sort of guarantees on democratic rights or civil liberties, uh, or providing relief to a, to, a, to, a, to a people which has seen only death and destruction, because it's a, it's a state which is ravaged by armed militancy as well. And uh, in the last one year, uh, though the government says that it will take some more time for Kashmir to integrate to part of the mainstream, it, it, I mean, there, there seems to be no sort of uh, inkling or, or whether there are signs of recovery of people, which, just, which seems to be still a far cry. And therefore, that's what, that's what the status of Kashmir is. What's more, what's more important is that education has really taken a back seat. About 1.6 million students um, have really not attended schools or colleges except for a very, very short period because Kashmir has largely been under curfew or otherwise under blackouts, uh, lockdown, um, a lockdown now because of the pandemic as well as security reasons, but otherwise because of keeping the peace, uh, which the government wanted. So that's where it stands at this particular point. And uh, we really don't know how whether things will get better. But on the eve of one year of after having scrapped uh, uh, three the special status, political parties are demanding right now 
of the restoration of full communications to the region and the lifting of curbs which allow the free movement of people because many people still believe politically uh, that there, there is that Kashmir still is an open prison and many political leaders who have been who were detained in August 5th 2019 continue to be in detention centers or prisons across the state. The Italian city of Genoa has inaugurated its new bridge almost two years after 43 people were killed in the collapse of the previous one. The new structure is designed by the world-renowned architect Renzo Piano, who is from the port city. Its opening comes just ahead of the completion of an investigation into the cause of the disaster, with a trial expected next year. The BBC's Mark Lowen is in Genoa. An onlooker captured the moment on the 14th of August 2018 when Genoa's Morandi Bridge fell. Opened in 1967, its concrete cable stays were a feat of Italian engineering. But at 11.36am that day, one broke, bringing down a pylon and a 210-metre section of the bridge. When I got the news, uh, I was paralysed. The renowned architect Renzo Piano, whose work has included the Shard in London and Paris's Pompidou Centre, is from Genoa. Morandi Bridge was, for me, fantastic, brave example of engineering, beautiful. Everybody loved that bridge. Everybody also was a bit frightened by the fragility of the bridge in some way. The bridge should never collapse. They don't have the right to collapse. On the bank of the river, beneath the imposing new bridge, is a memorial garden with 43 trees symbolising each life lost. And then on one side, the names are carved. Next to each other, three names. Roberto Robiano, his wife Ercilia Piccinino, and their son, Samuele Robiano, just eight years old, the youngest victim. This is my brother, Roberto, my nephew, Samuele. Roberto's brother, Giorgio, is pointing them out. On that day, two years ago, he was with his father, waiting to celebrate Roberto's birthday. The worst thing it was to tell to my father that his son is dead. I feel my heart like splitting two and, and one part is missing. This new bridge is just made with the blood of my brother, my nephew, my sister, and there are 40 persons that lost their lives, and there's nothing to celebrate. The steel inside the Morandi Bridge began to corrode soon after it opened in 1967. The company in charge of maintaining it, Autostrade per l'Italia, stands accused with successive governments of serious neglect. A report into the causes of the collapse is due by the end of the year, with 71 people investigated and a trial expected soon. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. The symptoms of COVID-19 can be mild. Don't go to work or school if feeling unwell. Wear a mask and consult a doctor promptly. Ask doctors at accident and emergency departments, general outpatient clinics, private hospitals, or clinics for free testing provided by the Department of Health. Return the specimen to a designated collection point or use the door-to-door -door specimen collection service for a fee. Test promptly for early detection. Radio 3 Weather.
A look at the weather forecast for tonight and tomorrow. Cloudy with showers and a few thunderstorms. Those showers will be heavy at times and temperatures will range between 26 and 29 degrees. The winds we can expect will be moderate south to southeasterly and fresh offshore. The outlook... Thundery showers at first on Thursday, with the promise of sunny periods in the following couple of days. Currently, the air quality health index here in Hong Kong is low, which means the air quality is good. The readings are two at both stations. At the observatory, air temperature 26 degrees Celsius. Relative humidity stands at 94%. To the music now, Simon Wilson sitting in for the world's most durable DJ, Uncle Ray. Instead of All the Way with Ray, it's Some of the Way with Simon. Assorted ballads and easy listening through till one. Get your requests in 2338-266 is the number. So find another fool like before Cause I 